Well, good morning again, church. Thank you so much uh, for gathering and for bringing the church into wherever you happen to be, uh, your living room, your dining room, uh, wherever you are watching this and tuned in. And thanks for inviting us into that space uh, as well. We're grateful uh, to be able to have the technology even to do this and be able to gather in this way. Please know that we're continuing to pray for you all. We look forward to the day when we can gather again in person Uh, We're also thankful that right now we still get to worship King Jesus. We get to worship him through song. We get to worship him as we pray to him and also as we open up uh, his word that he's given to us. And it is my joy this morning to be able to open up God's word with you all. If we've never met before, my name is Jamie and it's uh, it's my great joy. It's my privilege uh, to be one of the pastors here uh, at Crosspoint. So we are in a series called The Light of the Gospel. We're journeying through the great book of 2 Corinthians. And if you're new to this book, the quick setup is this, that the Apostle Paul helped start this church, but he's away from them, or he can't be with them in person. Uh, so he's writing uh, some letters, there's 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians uh, that we have, and he's guiding them, instructing them, he's expressing his love for them, but he's also willing to confront them, in particular, as we're going to see today, um, those that are using their influence, leveraging sort of their uh, leadership for all the wrong purposes, all right? We'll talk about that more in a moment, uh, but It is a word not only for people a couple thousand years ago, but I think it's very timely for us as the church today in this cultural moment in which we find ourselves. And so I wanna invite you uh, to get a Bible out and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're gonna be looking at the first 15 verses. You can also make use of our message notes. So go to cpwp.life, swipe over until you see a card that says message notes. The text this morning will be listed there. Any of the slides that I put up on uh, the screens uh, as well will be there, space for you to take notes. But I wanna go ahead and read this. Uh, We'll make our way back through these verses, but wanna hear it in its entirety. Um, And so I would invite you to follow along with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll look at the first 15 verses here. So hear God's word. Paul says this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that, that I am not in the least inferior to, inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Verse seven, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Verse 12, and what am I doing? I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. 
For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Church, as we make our way through this text, I wanna invite you, we need God's Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds, our understanding that we might rightly grasp this truth that is for us this morning. And so if you would, I'm gonna put some words on the screen. Will you pray this aloud with me wherever you happen to be? I will not be able to hear you, but the Lord Jesus, he hears us right now. So let's pray to him and ask him to be at work. Oh Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on the path you set before us through Jesus Christ, amen. Well, here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna do things a little bit differently uh, this morning with this text. We wanna make our way through all the verses, but I wanna actually start with the last couple of verses. I wanna look at verses 13 to 15 because what we see in these 15 verses, all right, um, well, one, uh, just as an aside, um, there's some heavy amounts of sarcasm that the Apostle Paul is using, all right? So if some of you, or maybe you're like me, and you're like, oh, you have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. Apparently, Apostle Paul did, all right? And so there's some good warrant for that in certain, you know, certain spots, all right? Uh, but what the Apostle Paul does in 13 to 15 is he is confronting a group of people. So look with me at the, back at these verses. He's doing some confrontation but it's not because Paul is trying to pick a fight. It's not because he just likes arguing with people. This actually is done out of love. There's a confrontation that really is happening here as we get towards the end of 2 Corinthians. These themes have come up a bit throughout, but now he's kind of really zeroing in as he's getting ready to conclude the letter and he's confronting a particular group of people. And did you notice even some of the language that he uses? He speaks here, as we look back over 13 to 15, he just calls them straight out. He said, they're false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So apparently there's a group of people, they say all the right words, they sing the right songs, they say they got good prayers, all right? They use probably words like gospel and Jesus and forgiveness and grace, and they can use all of those words that would have been familiar to the church. And yet, do you hear what he's saying about this group of people? They're disguising themselves. They're seeking to deceive other people. And why is that? Well, he says, well, Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants. So he's calling this group of people who are influential in the church. He's not indifferent towards them. He's not like, oh, well, they're off a little in their theology. He's like, no, they are following Satan. They are literally servants of the enemy of God. Now that's some harsh language, right? But what is Paul doing here? It's out of love for the people in the church in Corinth and it's also out of love for these false apostles, these false teachers, because he wants them to repent, that Paul loves them too much to let them stay where they're at. Paul views it as a great injustice to not actually speak out about this, all right? He has to step in. He has to confront because he's being obedient to the Lord Jesus. And he realizes that there's this very real enemy that is trying to deceive, is trying to say, ooh, this is, Satan disguised himself as light, have you read the, the Chronicles of Narnia, all right? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you've got one of the, the kids, all right, ends up in Narnia and comes across the White Witch. And he's enamored with her. Why? Because she keeps feeding him this Turkish delight, keeps giving him these things. And it's enticing and it's great. And he thinks, how could this person possibly be bad? 
And that's how it is with the enemy of God. There's this great deception, and yet we don't realize that the enemy is at work to distract us, detract us from the mission that God has for us, and is ultimately leading us to a place of death and devastation, of just ultimate destruction of our lives. And so Paul confronts them in love. And maybe you have a view of Christianity that's like, no, it's supposed to be nice and kind and gentle. And yes, we even looked at some of that last week, the gentleness of Jesus, the gentleness of Paul, the call for us to be gentle. But gentle, do not equate that to not speaking out. In fact, what we see here, all right, I would say is there's a gentleness that Jesus had with those that were outside of the, the kind of the... Um, the religious circles, those that were on the fringes, those that were marginalized, those who are on the underside of power, the overlooked of society. He was incredibly gracious to them. All right, he was incredibly kind. He would come alongside them. But Jesus also would get angry and cranked up and Jesus would go after those, not outside, but those who were the most religious, those that were in the inner circle. Do you remember some of these words? Perhaps you've come across these before. If you think for a moment that Jesus never said hard things, that he's just sort of your buddy that's just gonna let you do whatever you want. Jesus calls out the religious. So we need to see this, this confrontation. What Paul's doing is in line with him following his rabbi, his teacher, his Lord, that is Jesus. Matthew 23, I'll just give you a couple of examples. There's this series of woes that Jesus pronounces to those that are the religious. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, all right? Hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. This is a conversion. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's some confrontation right there, right? And Jesus is doing it out of love. He's realizing, he realizes, he wants us to realize that the problem isn't out there as much as it's in here, it's prevalent. There's something amongst the church and religion that can foster, unfortunately, um, this, this view of superiority. And like, we've got it all together. We buy into false narratives, false teaching. And that's what had happened here in Corinth. I'll read you one more, Matthew chapter 23, just a few verses later, 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, He's not talking about those people out there. He's talking about the religious elite. He's talking about the people that have all the right answers. He's talking about the people who would dominate at Bible trivia, all right? They know everything, and yet they're missing what is of utmost importance. And the apostle Paul is warning them. He's warning us. He's telling us to pay attention. Paul did this as he was getting ready to leave the church in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, and he reminds them, here's where the problem's gonna come. It's not from out there in the world. It's from within, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's talking to the pastors and elders there to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now my guess is they don't show up in look like fierce wolves, but that's what they are. And so right out of the gate, here's what we gotta talk about, all right, is this confrontation. Now, Paul is confronting them about 
their false teaching, we'll, we'll unpack more in a moment, um, because their impact is causing people in the church in Corinth to sort of stray from their commitment, to stray from what the Apostle Paul says is this pure and this sincere devotion that we are called to have to Christ. And so look with me back at the first six verses now, and we want to talk about this commitment, all right? And so Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, all right? And what he's talking about there is he's at the end of chapter 10, he's talking about, you know, boasting only in the Lord, all his naysayers, they boast in a whole bunch of other things. Paul doesn't really want to play those games, all right? Um, but as we're going to see, not only in the text this week, but in next week, Paul's like, okay, just if we want to go that route, I'll, let me tell you what I'm going to boast in, all right? And so he's kind of turning that upside down. And he says these words about this church. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And then Paul acknowledges in verse five and six, he's like, okay, um, sure, some people are knocking me because I'm not as uh, good in, as, you know, I don't do as good a job in public speaking as some of these other guys. He's like, but I have the true knowledge. And so regardless of how polished it is or how things are going or how he's perceived, he's like, there is a truth that I am tethered to and that's what I'm gonna proclaim. Whether you think it's eloquent or not is beside the point. So look back with me over these verses. Paul says he's got this divine jealousy, which basically means he's equating that uh, characteristic of God is that God is jealous. And so what in the world does that actually mean? Because when you and I hear that, when I get jealous, it's over a petty, trivial, like it's, it's a really bad characteristic. Like get jealous over somebody, oh, they got to go on that trip or they have that amount of money or you know, they own that home or they got that car or they get to go experience whatever, right? We all have things that we get jealous over. But that's not how the Bible speaks of it when it refers to God. In fact, what's really interesting is the Bible, even in Exodus 34, verse 14, it says this, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God, all right? Maybe you took great care if you've got a child to, to name them, you want there to be some significance, you got a pet and you wanna name it with some significance, right? Something that means something. Well, in that time and place, in that part of the world, I mean, names were loaded. They were always significant. What does it tell us? Huh, his name is jealous. It means that our God is fighting for what is pure and beautiful and lovely and true and right and good and glorious, all of those things. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, spoke of it this way. He said, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. That language is key to understand why Paul is so cranked up and confronting these false teachers and why we should be on guard against false teaching, why we should examine our own hearts to make sure there's, there's no false beliefs or teaching that we haven't drifted ourselves. And what we need to see here is Paul has this divine jealousy, like God himself, he has this jealousy, and as Packer talked about it, to preserve something supremely precious. Paul's writing these words because there's a group of people that are supremely precious, not only to him, but they're so precious to Jesus that the God of the universe, that Jesus himself like would die for them. 
And it wasn't just for them, it's for you and me. Anyone watching this right now, for this world, Jesus views you as precious, his willingness to go and die and to sacrifice and to incur the wrath that should have been poured out on you and poured out on me, instead was poured out on him. And so there can be these things that distract us. And so what Paul does here is this really interesting imagery that he brings up and he speaks of betrothal, all right? And so what's happening here, all right? And we need to understand a bit of sort of just how weddings, marriages worked in a Jewish context is there were kind of three parts to it. That initially there's this betrothal, all right? Sort of this commitment between this man and this woman and the families would be involved and oftentimes arranged. Then there was an engagement period, all right? And then there was the actual marriage, the, the wedding day. And so what Paul is doing here, all right, is he wants to use this imagery to say, hey, I'm here, all right, with this, with this divine jealousy, and I'm so concerned that this bride, all right, is not getting ready for her husband who is Christ, that something is going wrong, and he wants to protect her. So picture this, if you will, all right? Imagine this sort of uh, scenario. You've probably experienced this. Maybe you've lived um, at least part of what I'm going to, to share. All right, you've been to a wedding, right? So you picture that the doors in the back of the church, they, they slowly move open. And there, as the people begin to stand and as the doors are opening, what do we see? We see the bride, this radiant bride, all right, clothed in the white dress and just smiling and happy and just full of joy. And there next to her, oftentimes is what? Is the father of the bride who is there ready to escort her down the aisle. Beautiful scene, but picture this for a moment, that if the bride begins to walk with her father arm in arm, moving toward the end of the aisle, up towards the front of the church where her, you know, where the, the groom awaits, right? Where the bridegroom awaits, and he's looking at her longingly and he can't wait for this, this moment to, to finally, it's finally here, to finally happen. Imagine that they're walking down the aisle and there are people that are, that are smiling and are happy, but then they start to hear people calling out like, don't do it, it's overrated, it's not gonna work, get out while you can. Like, what if, what if people started yelling those things out? I mean, it would be very disorienting, right? And not only that, imagine then as the bride makes her way down the aisle, she looks and in this one section there in the church, she starts to recognize a group of guys and she's like, who invited them? They're all her former guys that she's dated. And they're calling out like, you should be with me, forget him, there's still time. And they're yelling these things out. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing, all right, um, to, to picture and to envision. And hopefully that hasn't happened to you before, right? Um, but that imagery is kind of what Paul is getting at here. It's a father... Paul sees himself as that, walking this bride down, wanting to get her to the groom. And if a good father was there walking with the bride, despite all the people, you know, like hollering things and trying to create distractions and diversions and make her make different choices, a good father would speak into her ear and would remind her, the love of your life is there at the end of this. All right, keep moving forward. Keep step by step. Don't pay attention to what is going around uh, on the side of you, don't pay attention to the naysayers and the haters and the people that are trying to distract you. Stay focused on what ultimately matters. And then the apostle Paul does this. He goes and he references the very first marriage and he references Eve and he says there was this serpent that came and deceived her, got her to believe that she would be happier in the arms of another. That's ultimately what the Bible speaks of. When we find our identity in anything but God, when we believe God somehow is holding out on us, the Bible speaks of that as like a spiritual adultery. And Eve, rather than being faithful, all right, 
to the God that created, that gave her everything in this moment, is deceived by the serpent and believes, oh, that somehow God is holding out on her. And so the question we have to ask ourselves as the church is not just, oh man, I can't believe those people would do that, but how and in what ways are you and I being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ? Because it does happen. That scenario, that kind of hypothetical, that just weird story of the bride walking down and the people hooting and hollering and yelling all these things, we think that doesn't, you know, okay, maybe that may not happen exactly like I'm telling that. But every single day, you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, we live in this space and it's contested. And there are things clamoring for our attention. And there are things that are trying to divert us from the one true God. There are things out there that are saying, oh yeah, you can have Jesus, but you need this, whatever it might be, fill in the blank in order to be happy. You need a flourishing marriage, or you need this job, or you need a certain amount of money, or you need to be obedient in, a, in just the, the right ways, or you need to have just the right, be in the right theological camp, all of these things. And Paul's saying, I, I want you, I, I want you to know I care so deeply about you. I don't want you to be distracted and diverted. Paul would later write to Somebody he was apprenticing in the gospel ministry, this man named Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says these words, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What Paul is driving at here is he's saying there needs to be this pure, devotion, this sincere and pure, this passionate devotion to Christ. But it needs to be, and this is hugely important for us to get, what we believe actually matters. It's not enough to be passionate about things. There are plenty of people that are passionately committed to the wrong things that are in hell. That's the reality. God loves us enough that he would confront us. The apostle Paul loves this church enough to confront them and say, it's not enough to just be committed. It's not enough to say, hey, whatever you're passionate about, embrace. He actually says, your thoughts, your theology, your beliefs actually matter. Sam Storms commenting on these verses said this. I thought it was really helpful. He says, your thoughts should feed and nourish passion for Jesus. Your thoughts should inflame your love. Your theology is the foundation on which the edifice of affection and devotion is built. Any alleged sincere and pure devotion that is not the fruit of thinking about Jesus is mere infatuation, a, a slight vacuous and fleeting feeling that will soon pass. And so Paul in this is saying, we need to be committed to the right thing. Now, I realize that for many of us in the church watching this, all right, expecting, okay, we're opening the Bible thing. Okay, well, yes, I get that. But I want to put before you that it is so easy to allow sort of our American culture to begin to morph and shape and really distort what is the gospel. Because what was happening back then, here's the crazy thing, right? And the writer of Ecclesiastes said, there's nothing new under the sun. And so what was happening in Corinth is what continues to happen today. So what different gospel was Paul confronting when he said they're embracing a, a different Jesus and a different spirit and a, and a different gospel? It was a gospel that was focused. Here's where the false teachers were. It was focused on triumph and victory and ultimately of self. It was a group of people that were focused in on those things, about breakthroughs and about your best life now and all that sort of nonsense. That's what was happening. And it continues to plague the church. The other night, 
I had heard about this documentary. Maybe you've watched this before. I would absolutely commend this to you. In fact, this should be part of the rest of your day. Don't go watch it right now. Please watch the rest of the service. But then later today, um, if you've got a Netflix account, I believe maybe it's in other uh, places as well, but there's a documentary called The American Gospel. And it's this call to focus on Christ alone. But what it talked about is an American gospel. As I watched this this week, while studying for this sermon and reading this text and having been in 2 Corinthians and then seeing Paul call out these false teachers, it was this moment of like, oh my goodness, this same story is just, it's just on repeat. It's what happened back in Genesis 3. You can be a God. God is holding out on you. And so you got to take matters into your own hands. You're meant to have your life just the way you want it to look. That's what was happening in Corinth, this group of false teachers who thought the apostle Paul, he's suffering, all right? He's enduring things. He's enduring hardship. He's not living his best life. The apostle Paul can't possibly be all we thought him to be because he's suffering. God doesn't cause suffering. God doesn't want you to suffer. God wants you to have a happy, flourishing, health, wealth, prosperity, name it and claim it, word of faith sort of life. That's what they're teaching. And in our day, in our context, and what this film does a remarkable job of sort of unearthing is like, that still happens today. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's blatant, all right? Sometimes there's things that you turn on, the, the late night preacher on TV, and you realize, okay, that is nonsense. And you can see it from a mile away. And you're like, that dude, all right, his net worth is $700 million. And he's got this private island. These are true stories that they reference in the documentary. You're like, okay, that guy, all right, is a false teacher. But then there are other things that come along that I think if Paul was here today, he'd be like, you gotta watch out for that because it's having an impact. We are fusing, we're taking the gospel we should have this pure devotion to Jesus, to his gospel. And instead, we're kind of mixing it with the American dream. The American dream of, of prosperity and of just everything going right. And if we just work hard enough. And it flies in the face of the true gospel. Let, let me just read you something that, uh, this was one of the things that occurred in this documentary. It was referencing a pastor that many of you actually would probably even know. And they're getting ready in the service to take their morning offering, all right? And so the pastor gets up and he says, as we receive today's offering, we are believing the Lord for. And then he asked the church, I'll put them up on the screen. He asked the church to recite these things aloud. Now, remember, in and of itself, the things that are on this list aren't bad, but when he's tying that to, we're gonna receive the offering and then we're believing the Lord for these things. Do you see what's happening? There's this false gospel of prosperity. There's this false nonsense that the story, or there's this nonsense about the story being all about you and your breakthrough and what's gonna happen in your life. And so he says, Recite these things with me. We're believing the Lord for, and then he begins to rattle these things off. Jobs and better jobs, raises and bonuses, benefits, sales and commissions, favorable settlements, estates and inheritances. Again, that list, are those bad things to hope for, to pray for, or if there's an opportunity for some of those things? No, like you can pray that you do well in your job, but when you begin to tie those things somehow to like the Lord is going to grant you that favor because of what you've given to him, suddenly you're adding Jesus plus something else in order to have it like a flourishing life. And it's just not true. Pay attention to these things. What was happening in Corinth continues to happen today. Theology matters. What you believe matters. What are you studying? What are the things that you're taking in? There is a version of Christianity that is out there that is no Christianity at all. 
all right? If you want to know, like, what are some good resources? What are some things to avoid? Like, please seek out your, your church staff. We want to help you in this. There are so many. We've never lived in a day and age where there's so many good resources, but there are so many bad things. I'm not trying to make us fearful, but I'm trying to get us to see that there's an old, tired narrative that is out there. And we need to embrace what is true. I'll reference one more thing from Sam Storms. He said this, when any alleged Jesus is received as something less than the all-sufficient and all-satisfying savior from sin and death, he is not the Jesus that Paul proclaimed. Is the Jesus you received the single solitary basis for the forgiveness of your sins? Is the Jesus you received the one whose death satisfied the father's wrath? by providing a penal substitutionary sacrifice for your transgressions? Is the Jesus you believe, the one who, who rose physically from the dead and will return personally to consummate his eternal kingdom? Any other Jesus, Paul says, is a theological fiction, a religious cul-de-sac that will lead you in circles, but never open up the pathway to heaven and eternal life. Church, we need the gospel, the The scriptures tell the story of the gospel. This is what we need to rest in, all right? We don't need to be pursuing this American dream with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled into it, all right? There doesn't need to be more of girl, wash your face sort of stuff and claiming that it's a Bible study, all right? And listen, if you're like, oh, why is he referencing that? I read it, I felt very weird reading it, okay? But just like all of that stuff that is happening that is out there that masquerades is like, oh, this is what God wants for you. This sort of flourishing prosperity stuff, that is not true. What's gonna happen when we suffer? What's gonna happen when there's a pandemic? What's gonna happen? Like the Bible actually speaks to the resources that we have. If you're like, oh, my life is supposed to go amazing. Well, just look at the Bible. How did it go for Jesus? How did it go for Paul? How did it go for Peter? How did it go for John? Circumstances changed. Things were difficult. They didn't achieve all their dreams. They didn't have all these breakthrough moments. They weren't just living their best life. What ended up happening is they were suffering. They, many of them gave their lives and yet they rejoiced because of what? Because of the gospel, because of their identity being found in Jesus Christ. I watched that film the other night and in parts, I just cried, all right, sitting there by, in my, by myself in my living room watching this because there were beautiful stories told of people suffering and the ways in which they were just finding the joy of the gospel. And there were a couple other moments as things were talking about these false teachers and prophets, like I wanted to literally throw something at my TV. I was irate. And Paul here, all right, is like, guys, let's remember the one true gospel. So church, for just a few minutes here, all right, I wanna read a few verses They just highlight this. Let's soak in this. Let's not give in to this false narrative that's out there. The gospel gives us the resources for when we're suffering and when we're experiencing joys. That is what this world is gonna look like. That is what this life is gonna look like. What Paul is speaking against are those that are viewing themselves already like the wedding has actually already happened. Theologians would call it an over-realized eschatology, all right? You can just drop that at lunch, drop that line there. It literally means you're living as if Jesus has already come back and everything is amazing and everything is gonna be, everything is gonna be healed and you got your mansion and all that stuff. It's like, that's not true. So let's not sell that. Let's talk about the beauty and the wonder of the gospel and where our hope is found. And so let me read you a few verses. Romans chapter three reminds us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, not through works, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He's purchased your freedom, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is this idea that the wrath of God was satisfied when Jesus took it and then it was turned 
to favor. So now God, it's not that he just wiped away your sin and got a blank slate. You now have the righteousness of Christ. He looks on you with favor. He looks on you same way he looks on his son, Jesus, who is perfect and spotless and righteous. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, that Jesus became this curse for us. He took what we deserved upon himself. Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why in the world would we give in to anything else? This is a sincere and pure devotion. Church, may we be defined by a radical commitment to this truth, that we might not stray from this, though there might be competing voices that will say, hey, you need to add a little bit to this or you need to just do you and you need to just do what feels good. Let's follow Jesus who gave us everything. We lack nothing. Let's not be deceived by the serpent. Let's not be deceived by this angel that's supposedly full of light, but is really full of darkness, believing the lie that somehow God is holding out from us. No, God has given us everything. He's given us his son. And so conclude with this. There's more we could say about verses seven to 12. It's just one big idea, all right? Paul begins then to just say, in light of this, how he lives. And he's criticized. I read it a moment ago, all right? In sort of the summary of seven to 12, as Paul speaks the, these words, all right? And he says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? There was a group of people basically that were like, no, like if a speaker rolls into town, there's an honorarium and those that are the best speakers get paid the, the, the most, you know, most amount of money. All right, that, was, that happened then, that still happens today. And Paul says, no, 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 God has been so gracious to me. Everything he gave me, it was free. It doesn't mean that Paul thinks it's wrong for somebody to work for church staff or get paid or anything. But in this case, he's like, I just want to demonstrate for you that the gospel that I've received, which is free of charge, I'm not gonna do ministry here in your context, Corinth, in a way that I'm gonna charge you things. I'm actually gonna live, and I would put before you, it's this cruciform life. It's a life where Paul says, I'm gonna take up my cross and follow after Jesus because there's no better way to live. And so what he describes here is a life where he's being poured out for the good of other people. Church, that's our calling. And we have an incredible opportunity amidst all the chaos and the pain and the hardship and the brokenness that is ever present that we have felt in acute ways even this week. There's an opportunity for the church to step in and say, how can I be poured out for the good of other people? That's what Paul speaks of. And when he gets to verse nine, he says, or verse 12, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. He's like, those false teachers, those false prophets, those false apostles, like, listen, we're not on the same team. I'm gonna continue to pour myself out for the good of other people, not because I have to earn the affection of God. I already have the affection of God. I'm going to do that in response, in glad response to what King Jesus has done for me. 
This is why Paul could write this. We'll close with these words. In 2 Timothy, near the end of his life, Paul says this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, a cruciform life, a life following after Jesus. It had hardship, it had suffering, it had difficulty, it had pain, it had great joys, great highs. I mean, people coming to faith, people getting baptized, healings taking place. Like we're not anti any of those things. Those things are amazing. They're things to be celebrated. Good friendships, travel, all of that. But Paul also knows that his calling as a servant of Christ is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And that means there's going to be pain. There's going to be difficulty, but that doesn't mean that God is not good. It doesn't mean that God is not powerful. So there's this invitation to trust. And the reason that we can trust him, regardless of circumstances, is because of how Jesus was poured out for us, that he emptied himself. This Philippians 2, or here in these words in Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, go read chapter 11 of Hebrews. That's what it's referencing, is all these people who gave their lives for the cause of Christ. Difficulty, things that they endured. He says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How? looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That motivates us. That keeps us going. That is an invitation to, to live in a way where we follow after Jesus. We worship him regardless of circumstances. And so church, we're gonna continue in our service. We're gonna worship and I know some of you who are watching this, there are great things in your life to celebrate. And we praise God for that. I also know there are things in your life right now that are hard and difficult. And we're gonna praise God in spite of those things and trusting that he is at work. And so as I close in prayer, take a moment, ask the spirit to lead you in repentance, to remember the gospel, and then we're gonna rejoice together in song. So will you join me in prayer? Father, we are so thankful you've given us your word, that you've made it possible for us to be re reunited to you. We are meant to worship you, to be connected to you. We thank you, Jesus, that you've made that possible. And amidst all the competing voices and the things that would clamor for our attention, the things that would say we need this plus Jesus in order to be satisfied, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would Call those lies to mind so we might repent of them, that we might be a, a people that aren't distracted, to not be a people that would veer off from the gospel, but rather we would cling tightly to it. It is our only source of life and of hope and of joy. And so Holy Spirit, right now, remind us of the truth of the gospel. Bring those truths home, even to the, the dark places, the, the crevices, the places that um, maybe we haven't even opened up to God, but... God's grace, it flows downhill and it goes into all those, those places. And so we just ask, God, that your spirit, it would bring that transformation, that healing. And God, I pray that we as a people, in light of your gospel, that we would rejoice together. And so as we do that, even now through singing of songs, God, I pray that you would get your glory and that we would experience a deep and abiding joy as we worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.